Join me behind the scenes as I introduce you to my friends, the people who make your favorite films and TV shows, the people who make the sounds of Hollywood. Hi, I'm your host, Micha Lieberman. Welcome to the Sounds of Hollywood. Uh, you know, there's a, a term that comes up a lot in on this podcast and will continue to, I'm sure. It's the dub stage or the mix stage. Those terms are basically interchangeable. And what that is, is that is a, a essentially a, like a theater where at the end of the process, it's the last, it's the pinnacle. It's all of the sound work. Everybody's working together for from the moment they start shooting all the way until we get there to the mix stage, to the final spot. It's even called the final dub. Where what happens is the re-recording mixer, we've we've met some re-recording mixers in the past here, um, put all the sounds together. And what that stage is, essentially, is a theater. And it can be as small as a home theater, and some of them are ginormous, like at Universal. There is, uh, what is it? It's the Hitchcock New Theater. Hitchcock. Yeah, the, the Hitchcock Theater. That is like a gigantic movie theater with a balcony and the whole, and everything in between. And... There's generally a three-person crew on a dub stage. It is two re-recording mixers, two guys who are actually sitting at the at the mixing console, at the mixing desk, mixing, making the sound, changing the sounds. And then one guy called the recordist. And his job essentially is to keep the room functioning, to make all the equipment work, to make sure that all the right sounds are on the right channels and that everything is flowing the way it's supposed to flow and that the final product that comes out of there is up to spec and up to snuff. He's, uh, uh, or she is to some extent, uh, uh, the ultimate technician who also has to be sensitive to the artistic needs of the mixers. And... As a music editor, I spend a lot of time sitting on a dub stage watching re-recorders mix. And while I'm sitting there, there's this third guy who also is sitting there spending a lot of his time if he's done his job correctly and everything is flowing smoothly watching re-recorders, re-recording mixers mix. And so I spend an awful lot of time talking to recordists. And they are an interesting group of people. <laughs> and... They get to that job a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and there's a few recordists who keep popping up. I, I see them everywhere. And it's not because, well, I'll say it this way. It's because when I'm in a room, I'm in a studio where they are, I'm looking for them because they're great to hang out with and great to talk with. And, you know, some of my favorite people in this town are recordists because I spend a whole lot of time just hanging out with recordists. <laughs> And a lot of a lot of them do that job and do it great and do it their whole career. And a lot of them are hoping one day to move up to that chair to be a re-recording mixer. And most re-recording mixers did some time as a recordist to learn how the dub stage works, to understand the process before they become re-recording mixers. And I thought it would be fascinating to introduce you to one of my favorite recordists of all time, who now, very recently, thank God, has <laughs> made the move up to the seat. Yeah. Milo Train. Hi, Hi Milo. Welcome. Thanks. <laughs> it's fun to be here. And you took a really, really, I don't want to say standard, but you took a path from up, up the sound ladder. Yeah. Started as a sound assistant. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I started getting coffee. Started getting coffee. I, I legitimately, uh, and that's still a thing that happens. Then there's still people that go that route. But I started as a production coffee. assistant. No, I was uh, I was the client services helper, effectively at uh, Westwind Media. So Westwind Media was a, a, a company that had these dub stages. Yeah, and your job was client services, which is uh, we used to call the cappuccino fairy back in the that day. That is 100 percent what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Your yeah. job was to make sure the client, who is the producers, essentially showrunners, the showrunners, whoever, all the was people important. who are coming, that they have their coffee and they have their snacks and they have their parking spots and they they ha their needs are met. Yeah. And, yeah. And why did you did you have a goal, a sound goal? Yeah. Um, I graduated from college in two thousand and five, 
and I went to school for sound design for theater. Um, and we have a, a phase at the end of the year where uh, in about May, the seniors will go out to New York and go out to Los Angeles. The actors will meet with um, a creative talent and uh, the directors will meet with creative talent and the designers, whether they're set designers, lighting designers, whatever, will meet with various talent and try to see if there's a, a world where they would move to one of those cities and do work. And I w was on a tour through Westwind and probably I, th I was, I'm certain that I was the only sound person in that group, um, in that graduating class. And, uh, I got the business card of a sound supervisor. Um, kind of, I randomly just, uh, I, I'm a little bit appalled that I did that, but I asked a sound supervisor who was on the stage in the middle of a dub, if I could have their card. And it's a recurring theme that comes up. Just ha just ask. Just ask. Yeah. Right. And um, that was Walt Bost, actually, uh, who's one of the great ones. And um, I did. I called him when I moved out to L.A. And in about two months, there was a coffee ferry position open up at the at Westwind. Was your goal to do theater, or was your thought always to do TV? When I moved to L.A., I decided to try uh, try out doing TV and film. Um, I like theater a lot and I would still like to do theater, but the, I found repertory theater, which is faster paced than kind of a standard theater model to be more enjoyable. Uh, I like a quick production process and it turns out nothing's faster than TV production oh, no. process. Nothing is faster than TV. And it's great that, that, that I actually find for me, for my mentality, that is a wonderful um, part of the process is that's, the speed. It's one of the things I love too. We're making a movie a week, basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, you don't have to die on any hill. You can, if it, if something worked great, take the win, put it away in your head for later. And if something didn't work, always that's next okay. Week. You got next week to try again. <laughs> so you move out here, you just make the decision that you're going to go with film. Yeah. Try to make it in film and TV. You get this job as the cappuccino fairy, you know, yeah. as the client services. I, yeah. I, I, that is not a derogatory term. No, absolutely not. They have magic powers. They, they fly in with exactly what you need when you need it. Well, and you learn, you learn a part of the job that you have to learn, which that, is what that nobody counts on at first, which is that there is an attitude on stage and among clients that you have to figure out how to internalize before you do the job. And there are people that are really good at the job and they have a crap attitude and they don't work as much as people who have a good attitude. And it's not about like being uh, servile or like completely um, bending to every whim, but it's about, I think, presenting the right attitude to the client at the right time, whatever that is and whoever that client is. And it changes all the time. And how did you go from the client services to a sound assistant? Uh, I did a bunch of practice and I messed around with the rigs after hours and I sat in with editors and uh, Westwind actually got me in the union, made me a sound assistant and I worked on the, I started on the third season of Grey's Anatomy, third or fourth season of Grey's Anatomy. What does a sound assistant do? Uh, at that time, I was assembling the dailies audio load. So the way that television is shot is you'll um, you'll shoot a scene and you'll shoot a bunch of takes of that same scene and you'll shoot it from a bunch of different angles, focusing on different actors and different parts of the conversation. Uh, and then once the picture editor starts assembling the cut, the sound department is at the same time ingesting all of the daily audio that was recorded from the sound department that was on set, the production sound mixer, uh, assembling it so that it can be put together just like the picture is put together. But also you have the other takes if you need uh, other performances or if you need to cover a line when a light was dropped or a car drove by or something to that effect. So you're not just taking the sound that was shot 
with the along with the camera in real time. Right. You're sometimes you're you're as an assistant giving those editors the option of every time the actor said those words, I'm going to line that up so that you can maybe choose a different performance so that the performance we're hearing might be a different take than the performance we're seeing. Yeah. And there are a couple levels to that. Um, sometimes we prep all that material and saying, sometimes we just prep it in a way that you can get access to it really easily. Uh, the camera, when you record with a camera, 90% of the time, the camera is recording two tracks of audio and that's a mix that's coming back from the production sound mixer. But on a set, a production mixer will record easily up to eight, 32, sometimes even more tracks of audio. Those are individual lavalier mics on individual actors, um, as much as a couple of boom microphones and a couple of plant microphones. And all of that audio needs to be aligned and married together. Um, and back on the third or fourth season of Grace, it was a little bit harder. We were still using uh, Divas and uh, pulling it off burn DVDs. And actually, the first season of Grey's was quarter inch. So you're talking, they were still using tape and old, yeah, they were old, still scanning tape. old technologies. And that's, I guess, maybe a function of the fact that Grey's Anatomy has been on. Oh, that was very the beginning of Grey's Anatomy. Or yeah. Oh, okay. Because it's, you know, now the longest running show. Yeah. And, and it was like uh, running quarter inch tape for the first scene of, season of Grey's was a little bit outdated then. But they were really, the crews were really classically trained excellent crews at the top of their game and they consist grazes consistently excellent crews there's a reason why that show has lasted forever yeah and it wasn't just gray's anatomy right you were doing a ton of cool shows you were doing movies yeah at a lot of the small studios like westwind was you could do a bunch of different things and i supervised a small show for comedy central and i cut dialogue and i cut effects and i was also an assistant and I loaded video for uh, audio editors. I, I did all kinds of stuff, which is what tends to happen at small facilities. So you're working at Westwind. You're hired. I mean, you've moved, been moved into the sound assistant position where your job is essentially to wrangle all this audio, to get it in, yeah. make it available for the editors when they need it. Mm -hmm. But they're also giving you opportunities to start to edit. Yeah. And all kinds of different kinds of sound editing, editing dialogue, editing sound effects. And at the beginning, you were just learning how to deal with clients. Yeah. And you went from there through all the jobs. Pretty much. And you, they even let you supervise, you said. Yeah. Which, and the sound supervisor is responsible for all those editors. Right. And they even let you supervise some stuff. And so you that was really your, your training ground. Yeah, that was the anvil. And when they, and and that's really... An important thing, I think, that most people don't don't uh, uh, don't take into account, which is you can learn all of this stuff in, in school. You can learn it all mm. on the internet now. You can you can really master the tools, but you got to come here and train somewhere. You got to get under the wings of people who've been doing it for a while and just have yeah. them watch them go. And even just taking the job as a, you know, it's funny when I moved out here. I moved out here to be a film composer and. My very first job was uh, calling people to ask them to switch their long distance. Right. And uh, that was a big thing back in the 90s, you know, like trying to get people to change their long distance plan. And the reason I took that job is because it started at six in the morning and was over by one in the afternoon. Oh, perfect. And so then I drove across town to Hans Zimmer's studio where right. I had taken an internship where I was like sweeping cigarette butts out of the parking lot and doing the grocery shopping and like, you know... Uh, I remember there's, there's a uh, Hans has an incredible facility with lots of composers who work there. He mentors a lot of people. And one of the composers that was there at the time, John Van Togren, sticks his head out of his studio and he says, hey, come here, I have a musical job for you. And I was like, oh, finally. And I walk in the studio and he's like, hey, can you uh, untangle and sort all those cables? And I was like, how is that a musical job? And he's like, well, it's a lot more musical than doing the dishes. And I was like, oh, that's an excellent point. Yeah, you know? right, and, right. And it's like, I... My job was literally just to watch them work. Yeah. Like just to clean the table, but not look at the table, look up, see what's going on. And like those experiences, they're almost it, like you can't, you have to start that way. You mm -hmm. have to, you don't have to, but it. No, you, you don't have to, but I think people, I think right now, especially with, with things like YouTube, 
and with these assets that we never had before. And they're wonderful assets and we should be ecstatic that they exist for everyone. Uh, you still don't have the ability to see reaction in real time. I mean, whether, whether you're talking about learning how to play golf, you know, you can watch a YouTube video all the time, but until you start playing golf, you're not going to get any better. Right. And until you start playing in competition, you're not going to get better at competition. You might be a great golfer, but there's other things involved in competition than just golf. And I think one of the things that a lot of people are forgetting nowadays is that you got to be in the environment to be good in the environment. Yeah. And you have to learn how to collaborate. Yeah. And that really is in the end, like sometimes when people used to ask me what I would do when I, I would used to say I'm a professional collaborator. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's right. And you can't learn that in school. No. So how'd you get f to universal? Oh, wait, uh, uh, before we jump there, <laughs> sure. Before we jump there. And I, and I just thought of it now because I think it's important for people to understand. Yeah. Uh, when you were there at, uh, at at Westwind, you were working around some of the greatest mixers in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, there were some really fantastic mixers. Some real heavy hitters were over there. Yeah, Don Didge was still there. And Don and I actually keep running into each other randomly, and uh, he's a really good guy. Uh, he he won an Oscar for E.T. Yeah. Right. Um, Peter Leo was there. Kurt Kosolke was there. Um, you were really getting a chance to watch some of the like old school masters. Yeah. Do it the old school way. Yeah. But in comes Milo, new school brain. Oh yeah. No. And <laughs> the old, it was really important to see how the old school guys did it. Yeah. And it was, it was impressive again, mostly in hindsight, because I don't think I was mature enough to get it at the time. I, the show that I supervised. I was also doing everything else. I was supervising it and I was cutting it. They d didn't really have the budget to do anything else. Like a full else. crew, right? Yeah. And uh, Pete Alia actually mixed that show. And in hindsight, I gave him some terrible track to mix. <laughs> and he laughed and smiled and the clients loved it and thought that they had made the funniest show ever because he thought it was funny. And it was a funny show. And, and that's all that mattered. And if he had if he had been as demanding as he had every right to be, that could have gone real rough. And that's still been a lesson as well to just like. So how'd you get from there to Universal? Uh, the writer strike. So the writer strike put everybody out of work, and it and it put me out of work for probably eighteen months, almost year and a half, no work. Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, I I did really small jobs here and there. I. I worked on the uh, I worked on the Grammys. Um, I did pretty much anything I could find to do. Right, because the Grammys doesn't have a writer. Right, so they could put that. Yeah, show there's on. a bunch of variety television that was still going, and most of my friends who came out, who I went out, uh, went to school with, and then moved out to LA with, are in variety television, not in scripted drama. So there was little jobs for them here and there. That's that the theater do. thing coming back. I think. Yeah, it 100 percent was. So I had met Eric Norris, who's a sound effects editor and one of the great sound effects editors who's around. Um, super broad range, really brilliant, uh, and also a fantastically nice guy. And I had met Eric Norris several years prior uh, through a tour at Universal because my father knew an engineer there from high school. You know, it, this is the way that all of this stuff seems to work. Right. And Eric asked me if I wanted to interview for the sound effects library job at, uh, at Universal. And the first time I interviewed for the job, I came in and I had this attitude of the small studio guy. I wanted to supervise and I wanted to do some mixing and I wanted to do some cutting and I wanted to do some exploration. And does it have this opportunity? Does the job have this opportunity? And the head of the department at the time looked at me and said, no, it's, it's a sound effects librarian job, which is what you will be doing for two years. And I was not very enthusiastic about that. And, and what is that job? Uh, that was collecting, managing, archiving assets, going out and recording 
sound effects occasionally, uh, but mostly collecting assets based on requests from supervisors or picture editorial departments that were associated with Universal. So when a when a uh, any Universal sound effects editor says calls up the librarian and says, "Hey, I need the sound of a 1972 Ford whatever, you know, running out of gas." Right. And you're like, "Oh, let me pull that up." Right. And and we've databased all of it. And so you don't need a librarian to get you the assets anymore, but uh you do need somebody who archives them all in a standard way. Who manages all of that. Yeah. And and if there is new material that comes into the library, either because a show records material or you record a sh- material for a show, that it gets put into the library in a way that's quick to get around. And date meta tagged and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And did you do that for two years? Uh, yeah, I did it for two and a half. And I loved every minute of it, actually. <laughs> and it turned out that that switch, the mental switch of going from a place where you do everything to a place where you have a hyper focus, but that in your free time, you can go and explore anything else within the context of a huge facility environment. Uh, right. There's nothing that Universal doesn't have. Yeah. And it was, it was a, I, I saw it as a limitation in the very beginning and it was not, it was really cool uh, and it was really empowering. I mean, I I know partially what you like about it because I know you, which is, yeah. ooh, a giant database to manage. That feeds right into your computer brain. Yeah. Well, and then, <laughs> and sound effects, like, and recording sound effects is kind of like treasure hunting, but you also get to have expensive gear and justify it and have knobs and lights. And you did, you did a lot of, I don't, I don't know how much a lot, but you had the opportunity to do field recording, which is probably really fun. Yeah. Like it's going out into the world and, and recording sounds for movies yeah yeah that was man of steel and um uh you did it for that denzel movie oh book of eli book of eli it was such a good process like that that is such a sound nerds process they shot the whole thing on quarter inch they flipped all the ADR through a quarter inch machine to get like this analog. So everything grid. was done on old school analog yeah. tape. So when you were out in the field recording sound effects, were you record? We, we did run an Agra, but we didn't exclusively run an Agra. So you were recording them analog and digital at the same time. Yeah. So you had these effects to add to your library, but you yeah. also had them recorded in this special way that Book of Eli wanted everything recorded. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It was really cool. It was <laughs> really cool. And we we recorded guns twice for that show. And one of them was in this tiny little shooting range in Burbank. Uh, it was the police department shooting range in Burbank. That's like right next to a park where tons of people are. And it it had this tiny character, like slot canyon sound, which is what you hear in all of the old, you know, old movies that were made in Southern California. You hear this like boom that has like this canyony effect on it. Right. And it's not because people were putting a canyon effect on it. It's because that's where they recorded. They were the recording guns. it in the canyons yeah. of Hollywood that's Hills. Where everything was shot. Yeah. Um and then we realized that, that didn't really work. Er- Eric was the guy who kind of was like, this isn't gonna work because this whole movie is in this desolate kind of desert hellscape. Uh and so we found a different environment to record the guns in that didn't have that canyon. That slapback. Yeah. It just this, it was this wide open plane and it was cool. It was great. <laughs> but it's a hard gig. Field recording, I think, is the hardest, hardest gig in post at this point. Really? Yeah. I got heat stroke like three or four times. Oh, physically demanding. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you're, you're in the field. But the rest of us are sitting in movie theaters all day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's true. And and coming off of doing that and then going straight out, yeah. So you get your shot to be a recordist at mm-hmm. Universal. Yeah. Is that what happened immediately after your librarian job? Yeah. And how did that happen? Uh, I thought I wanted to actually be an engineer. I didn't think I wanted to mix. And An engineer meaning one of the guys who you call when the equipment breaks. Yeah. Because I really like computers and I really like the equipment and I like the signal flow and I like figuring out the pro- the solution to the problem. And it's worth noting that by this point, dub stages don't have tape machines anymore. They don't right. have analog tape. They are just a giant series of computers all plugged into each other, all right. doing various computer jobs. And that the recordist is responsible for making sure that all, it's it's a very much hardware software based job, but all of it is audio. It's audio hardware, audio software. So it's it's a it's a very nerdy job 
which yeah, is it's why, about as nerdy why as I love recordists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I was sort of convinced by Rob Carr and Eddie Bidalic, two wonderful guys in the industry. Uh, Rob Carr is almost definitely going to get in here. Uh, oh, yeah. Just to put it in perspective, the very first show that I was ever the music editor on, my first union music editing job, yeah. Rob Carr was the recordist. Yeah, but I'm sure of that. We used to go back. Well, I'll save those stories for when Rob's here. But suffice it to say, we played a lot of SSX Tricky. He likes messing around. Yeah. So Rob Carr convinces you. Right. To be a recordist. Uh, under the guise of this is the best way to get in, in, into engineering. And it probably probably is. Um, so you you weren't on a, the path in your mind to become a re-recording mixer. You were thinking, no. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to fix all this gear. I'm going to master all these right. circuit boards and equipment. And I'm going to be able to bring my soldering iron in here and repair right. everything exactly that goes right. wrong. Yeah. yeah. And Rob Carr says... Hey man, I was a recordist. You have to learn this stage, every wire on this stage. If yeah. you really want to be an engineer, do your time as a recordist. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a mixer because I didn't think I could deal with the stress of uh, creative criticism in real time with the expectation of a solution. Uh, what I discovered as a recordist is that it's way worse as a recordist to be in that position because as a mixer, if somebody has a problem, you know what the solution is. There aren't that many solutions. You simply don't have that many tools to solve the problem. As a recordist, if you have a problem, that is by its nature a problem that somebody has not fixed yet. It, if you have a problem in front of a client, that is because nobody's figured it out. And right. there are no good answers. And the worst answer is calling engineering except for the actual worst answer, which is not calling engineering. And you thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be a recordist and I can sit in the back of the room and talk to the music editor all day. Right. And it's going to be simple. Right. But what you didn't it's realize not. was, and what I, what I tell people when they ask, what do you do on the dub stage? I say, I'm a fireman. That's exactly like, what you are. I sit there all day and I eat uh, chili until there's a fire. And then you're like, thank God he was sitting there. Yep. You know? Yeah. And it's like, the dub stage is not a cheap room. And every minute that work is not being done, that yeah. something is wrong, is a lot of money down the drain and everybody's looking at the recordist going, when can we press play? When can we press record? When can we go? Yeah. So the pressure was on and you didn't realize yeah. that when you took the job. No, not really. And, um, and how did you, how do you think you dealt with that at the beginning? Oh, I dealt, it turns out I dealt with it really well and I didn't, I didn't know that this was a talent that I had, but I'm really good at getting yelled at. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, so... I stuck with it because if you're going to, if there's something you happen to be naturally good at, you might as well get paid for it. Sure. And that was 2012, right? Yeah. And so Rob Carr was a recordist. I mean, was the re-recording mixer yeah. with John Cook. Yeah. And you were his recordist. Uh, Rob Carr was doing dual gig with John Cook and with Joe DeAngelis. Okay. And so I teched for Joe DeAngelis and Rob Carr. Uh, I was also checking at the time for Elmo and Bill Frisch. Okay. So uh, just so the audience can sort of catch up. At yeah. that point, you get put as the third man on the crew for Rob Carr, this guy who's just a bit older than you, just ahead of you in his career. J he was a recordist, just moved up to, to re-recording Mixer and was like, hey, take my seat as a recordist. Yeah. Like, And so you're watching this guy go and you're also behind... Uh, uh, Elmo Pons Dominic and Bill Frisch, Bill being like, you know, already by that point, legendary Hollywood re-recording yeah. mixer, That's old same school yeah. genius, but Elmo, like legendary of, yeah. Hollywood re-recording mixer. And so you're really getting to watch the whole, the, I don't want to say the generational difference, but no, you know, was, yeah. the big generational difference between the people who learned to do it on tape yeah. and the people who never did that. Yeah. Who started right. on the computers, you know? Yeah, pretty and, much. And, you know, when I think of, like, the techie mixers, like, you and Rob Carr, like, the f a couple of the people who come right to top of mind. Sure. So that's when I met you. Yeah. Because that year, we were doing that show, 1600 Pen. Yeah. And uh, that show was really fun because, it was obviously, it was a hilarious, fun show. And you knew Josh Gad, right? Yeah, we went to school together. He was at Carnegie Mellon in the writing department. And, um, at which the theater program at Carnegie Mellon is like really, really tiny. 
Um, so you know everybody. And um, and did you bump into him on the show? Yeah, he came to he came to stage, and we were joking around, and he like was into into it for maybe twenty minutes, and then he got kind of bored as he as he has tendency to do. And um, Rob Carr, uh, it was either Rob or Joe that said, uh, why don't you guys just go up to City Walk and like go ride the rides? <laughs> and so like we spent the day riding rides in City Walk. Oh, and then, you and Josh? Yeah. Oh, and then we so came hilarious. back and watched the mix. Back to your job of client services. Yeah, it was awesome. Go hang out at Universal Studios yeah. with Josh Gad and get paid for it. You have a tough life, Milo. Dude, it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful place to be. And you were recordist for a very long time. Yeah. I stayed uh, in that chair a long time. And eventually you left Universal. Yeah. Joe DeAngelis, Ken Gobet, and I all went to Technicolor at the same time. So as one of these, a three-man crew, two mixers and you, mm. you moved as a crew from one facility to another. Yeah. All together. And this is actually something that's kind of common in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing about mix stages is that it is a talent job. It is like hiring an actor or hiring a composer. You're hiring yeah. people because they have a particular sound. They have a particular creative spark. And so um, a lot of clients will come back specifically looking for a specific mix crew with, with whom they have a rapport and mm -hmm. with whom they you know know that they can get the sound that they want. And so that puts mix crews in a lot of power as far as the studios are concerned because people aren't coming to these incredible, beautiful stages that Universal's building because of the facility. I mean, it's a part of it, obviously, but they're coming for those mixers. Yeah. It's so, a relationship job. You know, you're with these people, you're with them a lot of the time. Uh, so they want to be with people who they like just being with. And they typically like to be with people who they enjoy the collaboration with. And that, to your point earlier of, of learning how to be a good collaborator, part of that is also recognizing when there are personalities you match with and personalities you don't. And you can fake it and make everybody happy, but people generally want to work with the people that they relate to really well. So you leave Universal with your crew. Mm -hmm. I mean, it probably wasn't really much your choice. You just, you're just Yeah, they asked me to go and I said, yeah. Yeah, they're like, you want to go? We're leaving. You coming? Uh -huh. You're like, oh yeah, I'm coming. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so you move over to Technicolor. Mm -hmm. You move over to Technicolor, which... Uh, People think of Technicolor as a picture company, and right. they were for a long time, but then they sort of purchased the sound department on the Paramount lot. Yeah, right? they, well, they built a brand new building with, in a partnership with Paramount. So you move from the Universal lot over to the Paramount lot. Right. And there you, you, uh, you were with Joe there, and you, but you didn't stay with him. Uh, no, I stayed with Joe for, I stayed with Joe and Ken, and then... Uh, Ken moved on to a different crew that was kind of better suited for his timetable. Joe was working like a lot. He wanted to always work. And that meant a lot of seven day weeks. And uh, Joe's old mixer, when Joe was actually a recordist, Chris Carpenter came over and they mixed together. Uh, and I supported them as a recordist until pretty much 20... Like 2017 was the first time I started moving away from that. And I mixed the second season of This Is Us. So you get your shot to sit in the chair now. Yeah. 2017. And it's your first real job as a re-recording mixer. And it's on a ginormous hit TV show. Yeah. Right out of the gate. It's yeah. not like... Here's a show that nobody's watching for you to get your feet wet. Mr. Right. Milo, I love to practice everything and learn and right. get my and understand it before I claim to have any expertise. Here's This Is Us. The whole world's going to watch. Yeah. How did that feel? Uh, Were you nervous? I, not really. You felt prepared? Yeah. And it wasn't because I knew what I was doing. Because, I, again, in hindsight, I certainly did not. Um, but I knew I could get it to where it needed to be. And I was going to learn while doing that. And who right? are you mixing that with? I started that with Joe and then the schedule didn't work out anymore and Joe needed to work on some other projects and I stayed with it and finished it with Adam Salson. So you, Joe says, hey, 
I'm going to bring, he, he was a recordist with an, with, when he was, he's mixing with the guy who was the, re- was the mixer when he was a recordist. Right. And he leaves and Joe says, now I'm going to bump my recordist up to that chair and you and guys work. And then Joe leaves and now you're finishing up the season of This Is Us. Yeah. And are you thinking at that point that you're done being a recordist? No, I, I knew that was, I was going to do that season. I was probably, I was hoping to stay on with that show. Uh, but it made more sense. I, I thought there was a world, and and because this was the conversation at the time, where I would partner up with Joe eventually, right? His his current partner, which is the same guy who he was uh, uh he was a tech for, um, could have retired in the any time in the last five years. But he's having a lot of fun and he's a great mixer and they have a blast on stage. And so they haven't. And uh, they've stuck together, and that's really cool. Um, so I was sort of waiting for that seat to open up. So you're sitting in the back of the room waiting for him to retire. Not waiting for him to retire. Yeah. Thinking someday he's going to retire, yeah. and that chair is going to be mine. Right. And I'm watching – I'm tr- attempting to watch him like a hawk to figure out what he's doing. Right. So that you're thinking when he leaves, I'm going to slide in there and nothing's going to change. Right. And that's the plan. Meanwhile, you're working on incredible TV. What, what yeah. were you doing? Cobra Kai and Umbrella Academy yeah. and like Watchmen. Watchmen, right? Like, meanwhile, while you're working for these, th- then yeah. it's it, it's not like it's a bad seat. No, that's the other. That's <laughs> like, the other reason I wasn't willing to leave. Like those guys work a bunch, and I like working, and they work on great stuff with really cool. That we were also doing uh, Love, Death, and Robots, which there's like nothing else on TV like that. There, it's just a lot of shows they were doing that there just wasn't anything else on TV like it. And you and I are spending a lot of time in the hallways of Technicolor because at the yeah. time I'm uh, working on this show with Alan Decker and Nello Torrey. Was it Looking for Alaska? Oh, yeah. With Alan for Nello. Alaska, yeah, with Alan for sure. Nello. Yeah. <laughs> I think we sat on that stage and counted that that. Uh, between the two of them, they'd done over 4,000 episodes of television. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And I'm sitting there uh, with Alan Nello down the hall, and you're sitting over there waiting for it to happen, and then Nello retires. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what happens at that moment? Well, what was funny is Joe pulled me out of the room, and he said, hey, uh, Al wants to ask you to mix with him, and I think you should do it. I'm having a lot of fun with Chris. I don't think Chris is going to retire anytime soon, and he's having a lot of fun. You should go work with Al because there's not going to be a better person to teach you how to mix effects. And I said, hell yeah, I'm in. Uh, pretty much anything Joe tells me to do, I'm I'm going to do. Uh, he has taken care of me and been a hugely valuable mentor. And Al, I adored. And I've, I, I had met Al over at Universal. And had known him ever since as one of the nicest people in the industry. Um, and Al asked me to work with him. And I said, hell yeah. And uh, the first time I had worked with Al actually was on Close to Home. And uh, uh, funny story, at that time I just started playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> and so I would sit behind him on the mix stage when I had nothing to do. And I would play World of Warcraft. And Al comes behind me and he's like, He's like, what are you doing? What is that? And so I show him. Oh, you World got it. You were the one who got him hooked. Like two years later, I get a call from his wife. Like, what the hell did you do? Why did you? Sh- Dude, <laughs> you got him hooked. <laughs> yeah. He became quite a gamer. And yeah. what what I think, why I think that the relationship that you ended up having with Al was so important was because he was this old school, done it a hundred thousand times, new, you know, has forgotten more about mixing than either one of us will ever know. Yeah. But he was also kind of a computer nerd. He was totally also a nerd. kind of a modern guy, like didn't never stopped learning, never stopped yeah. like like embracing the new. And so you're I'm gonna I'm Mr. Modern computer nerd who's gonna show all you old guys how it's done. Yeah. You didn't have anything to show him. No. And he had a lot to show you. Yeah. And so here it is, your bump. You're working, you're working on the Paramount lot in this, you know, uh, uh, studio environment. And this is now you're going to be done being a recordist, right? Now yeah. you're a re-recording mixer. And this was not that long ago. No, this was uh, 2019. 2019. And you 
And Al and Nello, this legend retires. Al brings you in as his partner and yeah. decides, I'm going to teach everything I know to Milo. Yeah. And he'd started that process of teaching you everything that he knew. And you yeah. mixed with him for how long? I haven't really done the math. I Every time I try, I- A little I over stop. a year, I think. Yeah. Right? yeah. A little over a year. And, yeah, basically. And then he was taken by COVID. Yeah. And that was really devastating to- yeah. To, to like everybody in his orbit. Yeah. I mean, you obviously, especially as his partner at that moment, but for all really the whole sound world, like yeah. nobody was prepared for that. It was very early in the pandemic. Yeah. And Al was, it's hard to describe how loved that man was. Yeah. Like he was just a ball of sunshine and happiness. And, uh, all of a sudden now, you thinking, I barely know how to do this. Like, I got a lot to learn. Yep. But there goes Al. So now what? What are you going to do? What, do, what, what, do, what were you thinking at that moment you were going to uh, do? I didn't have a plan. I, I, I went back into recordist mode of just put the fire out that's in front of you. Um, to be honest, I think I, I will say, and I think this is important, I – I love Al and loved working with him, but I didn't have the depth of relationship with him that a couple people who worked with him all the time did. And so it was a little tough because people would check in with me and ask me how I was doing. And it was like, well, really, they should ask Brian. They should ask because, people who had been working with him for 20 yeah, years. Yeah, like Brian was his recordist forever. Forever. B Brian knew when Al wanted coffee by how he was shifting in his chair. And they had a shorthand that was fantastic. And Vince, uh, a supervisor, fantastic supervisor who does Outlander and For All Mankind, was with Al forever, had been- here. Yeah, we were doing, Vince was doing uh, uh, Looking for Alaska. Yeah. And that's the second show that Vince and Al and I had done together. We had done Run Marvel's Runaways. Right. And Vince had been an editor for Al and a supervisor Just for Just to Al. fill the name, it's Vince Balunisa, yeah. who- we're currently doing Nancy Drew with a, a oh, yeah. really and like he's the best a real talent yeah he really is and he had known Al since the beginning of his career so like there were these two people who I respect very much and am very good friends with who I think were feeling it more than I even though I was feeling it right people thought people uh, I know that a lot of people in Hollywood reacted like oh you're his partner yeah so you're supposed to sort of lead the, the yeah and it felt really it felt weird because I I was for sure but like there were these people who you know knew knew how his day was going by how he opened the door and I was still learning his idiosyncrasies I was still learning his jokes like I mean the the funny thing we all said was that he got to tell all of his stories all over again. I, I didn't make it through all those stories yet. Right. Um, you know, those guys had heard him a thousand times. And nobody and, was really working at that point. No, we were just starting to come back. And what yeah. did you think you were coming back to? Now that this crew that you um, had finally, finally gotten in the chair. Well, so when he got sick, the show we were on chose to continue working and Adam Salson came in to fill in because he was, uh, he wasn't working that week. And I and, had, and that's who you had mixed. This is us with all right. those years before. Right. So I had a rapport with Al, Adam and I knew that Adam and Al were friendly and Al really liked him. And there's a weird thing there where like, if somebody's going to come in and cover your show, especially as a gaffer, I think you've, I wanted to make sure that it was somebody who Al really liked and who Al would have trusted with the process. And Adam came in, he ended up finishing off that, uh, that show entirely. And it was a lot of, it was nice to work with Adam because it felt comfortable. It didn't felt new and strange and, and risky. Um, but Adam had a crew and had shows to do himself. And, uh, I was talking with some people about different mixers I should reach out to. And somebody said, well, Deb Adair really loved Al and Al really loved Deb when they worked together at Sony. Uh, you should call her and see if she's available to fill in. 
And so she came and we mixed together for about a year. And you worked with Deb for a year, another incredible person to be mentored by. Unquestionably one of the most chill, talented, uh, exceptional mixers ever. I mean, I really, I, I can't, there are not enough positive words that in the library for her. What, 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 I mean, this is obviously going to be true everywhere in every yeah. industry in the world. When you had those w women who were excelling in what at the time, you know, 25, sure. 30 years ago was a good old boys club. They were the most exceptional, so much better at their jobs than the men around them. That's the only reason that they were able to rise. Yeah. She's one of the few examples of female re-recording mixers who pierced that that uh, that veil and really yeah. rose at a time when it was basically impossible for a woman to rise to the level that she rose to. Yeah, yeah, in all aspects. I mean, she did, uh, did does features, television. I just did a feature with her. Oh yeah? Yeah. Nice. Like last month. Oh, awesome. Was that a Paramount? Uh, yes, that was at Paramount. It was a uh, 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 movie for Netflix coming out called Your Place or Mine. Oh, nice. And she did with uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher and oh, right Reese on. Witherspoon. She did amazing. Of course she did. She's, I mean, she's a fabulous mixer. She is like just like foundation, fabulous mixer. But she's also one of the best ADR matching mixers I've ever sat next to. And I, I feel like I've sat next to some pretty amazing talent. What does that there. mean, ADR matching mixer? So she is, ADR is when we replace uh, lines that have been shot on camera with a line that was recorded after the fact in a studio. And typically it's a different microphone, a different moment, a different reading a different room, a, a different room, like all kinds of stuff They're, You know, the actors now on a different show where they have to play somebody in the twenties and now they're coming back to like re-record lines from when they're a space alien. And it's very hard to get that stuff to match. It's desperately difficult for the actors and it's hard for everybody. In the and process. I think a lot of everyone in the audience has experienced those moments where oh, yeah. you just can tell that that line didn't really come out of right. his mouth. It's clearly all of a sudden there's one line that's overdubbed. And I think a lot of uh, the audience doesn't realize how often they're fooled. Right. Right. They're fooled more often than not. But I, rem I mean, I remember specifically like the first episode that she and I worked on together. She got this line like she rolls into this line. And I was like, oof, that's going to be a fight. And I went back to doing my thing. And uh, about five minutes later, I noticed this sounds really good. And I was like, well, that's that's pretty great. Everybody, Everybody's going to buy that. And I kept working on something. And I look up five minutes later, and she's still there. And she rolls over the line. And I genuinely have no idea where the ADR starts and stops. And I had heard it like... I don't know. I'd heard it for 10 minutes looping. Right. While she I was can doing fool you. Stuff. She can fool anybody. And it's gone. There's nothing even remotely left behind that makes it sound like ADR. And that is never that I've never had that experience on a stage. I've heard things that are like, yep, I can tell that we'll get away with it and nobody will notice. But I've never gotten fooled myself after hearing it over and over and over again. And it was it was seamless. And, and that, then she's an amazing music mixer. And one that, of the best. That was uh, you. You did uh, what you said a year and a half with Deb. No, about a year. A year with Deb, and now you're off to a new adventure, and it's almost full circle, right? Yeah. Well, I, I spent another about a year. So I guess with Deb it was a little bit less than a year, and then uh, a little bit less than a year with uh, Carol Urban, who's also a fabulous mixer. Who. Uh, kind of came up through an old boys club for sure. And especially on the East coast, uh, and then transitioned, uh, to more scripted work out here. And so that, that has actually been a really amazing kind of that chunk of time has been a really amazing experience. Uh, and yeah, now I'm going back to universal, back to universal. Yeah. Not just back to universal, just to make it yeah. Full circle. Back to Al's old stage on Universal. Al's old stage at Universal. And what are you going to be doing at Universal? Uh, some Dick Wolf shows, uh, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, uh, the last season of Outlander, um, the third season of For All Mankind. With a brand new partner. With a brand new partner. Todd. Yeah. And uh, 
I'm assuming you're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. For many reasons, not the least of which is, you know, I've known you and Todd for forever. And, you know. Yeah. The thought of you guys getting together. Oh, it's going to be a blast. It's going to be so fun. I'm yeah. just a little nervous that we won't be able to get any work done because we'll just be telling stories the whole time. Well, we have a lot of work to get done. The <laughs> schedule for this season is terrifying. Well, I fortunate, fortunately for, for you, I'm not bringing a show to you this season, but we're going to get in there at some point. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait to see where your career goes from here. Oh, thanks. Like you really are... Uh, uh, just at the beginning, three or four years into your yeah. your re-recording mixer career, yeah. and it's it's uh you know what over a decade to get here. Yeah, just shy of twenty years. Yeah, twenty years, just shy of two decades. Actually, yeah. lots of people do this faster, <laughs> but it's important to 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 recognize all the different jobs, all the different steps, because the best re-recording mixers. They know where all those sounds came from and how they got there and what they can do to change them and what is available in the library to solve it. And mm -hmm. so many, uh, uh, because you you really are, as a re-recording mixer, you really are the last line of defense. Yeah. Like when you're done, that's done. That's yep. what the show sounds like. No more fixing. Yep. And uh, your experience in all of those various jobs landed you not with a soldering iron in your hand. No, with a fader. <laughs> with a fader in your finger, yeah. Yeah. And really, uh, uh, I am, I'm really hope to have you back someday in the future to talk about all your Emmys and Oscars <laughs> and all the the things that are coming because- well, Me too, that'd be great. Yeah, you definitely uh, uh, have a very, I mean, bright future is like something you say to someone who isn't mixing three Dick's, Dick Wolf shows, you know, this season. Yeah. You You really are crushing it. Oh, and thank you. Uh, I can't wait to see you crush it more. I look forward to it too. Me too. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure introducing you to one of my close friends. Can't wait for you to come back. Click the subscribe button. Follow us on social media. And uh, we'll see you next time at the Sounds of Hollywood. Hollywood.